glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead." Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. And if in any other, anything ye be otherwise minded. God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless whereto we have already attained. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren be followers together of me. And mark them which uh, walk so as ye have us for and in sample. Now, there are many today, as you'll hear me speak much, that would teach us that the Christian life lived under the grace of God is basically a boundaryless life, one without any kind of restriction or rule. Uh, but may I say this? Throughout the New Testament, there are a number of rules in place. The difference is why we keep those rules, why that rule would be in our life. When I am bound by fear... Uh, under the law, under the law of Moses, the law of God, meaning I obey because I dread death. The dread of death never accomplishes righteousness. The dread of death, the fear of destruction, is an unsuccessful motivator for doing what is right. However, there is a law called the law of love. May I say this? There are laws about how I'm supposed to treat my wife. I have no idea what they say. I'm talking about laws in the land. I'm not supposed to beat on my wife. How do you know that? That's against the law. It's called domestic abuse, and I'm not supposed to hit her when I get mad. I have to read that every day, you know, the law every day, not to punch my wife, because if not, I'd be doing it all the time. No, that's a rule in my life already. No matter write a code for me not to punch my wife, because we operate by the law of love. I love her, therefore punching her is out of bounds. The law of love is better than the law of the land. There may be laws that say, God says in his word, I'm supposed to provide for her, but if I love her, I will. Um, Same with my children and with my parents. Uh, There are things I do toward my my parents, not because someone forces me, and the same is true with you. I'm just trying to use an example, and I'd say there are laws that govern us, that determine our boundaries, and that... Make, make our course clear. It's not a law that is based in death, but it is the law of, uh, of life and liberty in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 talks about the spirit of the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's a law that is in place in our life. And Paul lived by that law. And he talks about 
walking by the same rule. And so he had some clear comprehensions in his mind that governed the way he lived his life. May I say this? If you don't have boundaries, you are going to drive all over the map. Every roadway to somewhere has edges and direction. Correct? They have boundaries and lines to, so we can get from point A to point B. And I believe Paul is going to set up some of the things that keep him on course, if I could say it that way. And when he boils it down, he says, this one thing I do. Uh, we've talked about one thing I know, uh, one thing I desire. We looked at this morning, one thing is needful. We'll understand each and every time that one thing is really one person. It boils down to the Lord Jesus Christ. God's provision of all we need is in one person. And so one thing matters, our relationship with him. Uh, I believe this. Yeah, I, I remember years ago, Jim Beth would remember this. It was one of those learn-by-mistake type things. We were asked, could we help a young couple? They're having marriage troubles. And uh, they, they were counseled by their pastor that if someone else, they didn't want to, pa- they didn't want to counsel. I was really with her pastor, not his said, we'd rather not counsel with him. He's too close, knows us too well. So he called, would you mind counseling those people? I said, they're willing to come. We'll talk to them. And when they got to our house, she really was trying to preserve the marriage. He was being unfaithful in that marriage. And she was very interested, at least seemed that way, in preserving their marriage. He didn't seem the least bit interested in it. It was parents' idea that counseled them to go get some counsel. And so we invited him up to our home to a meal. And we get done eating our meal. I said, let me ask you something. I said, are you here? I'm asked, talking to him because you want to be here or because somebody else wanted you to be here? And he kind of snarky said, uh, well, if I didn't want to be here, I wouldn't be. So I followed up with a second question. I said, miss this. Are you willing to do anything God wants you to do to please him in your life? He said, obviously not. I said, are you willing to do anything that God tells you to keep your marriage together? No. So are you willing to just do anything? Are you, basically, are you willing to live your life to please God? He said, no. I said, I can't help you. We were done. That was it. I wish I'd asked the question on the phone. <laughs> save them a trip, save them some gas mileage, because there's no way we're going to save their marriage. <laughs> My point is this. Our lives are to be lived exclusively for the Lord. He is to have preeminence in how many things? All things. I was doing a bit of study on those two words tonight. All things. God has a lot of things to say about all things. But may I say this? If one thing is in place, all things will be in place. That's what I'm trying to say to you. If Jesus Christ has the proper place in my life, I will be the right kind of husband. Because he has plenty of instructions for me about that matter of my life. If Jesus Christ has preeminence in my life, I will be the right kind of dad. I didn't say I'll be sinlessly perfect. I will be what I'm supposed to be. Meaning... One thing deals with all things, and that's what Paul's saying tonight. One thing had become the only thing that he was concerned with. He was not concerned. I see Christians so distracted today, and I battle distraction in my own life so desperately. We, we really want to focus on finance. And Do you realize how many ministries in a church you could start if you started focusing on all things? It's endless. We can have a, you know, we can have a, f- a financial planning class, and I believe we ought to teach on finances. Don't misunderstand me. But man, we can have all kinds of things trying to help people in all things. But I know this: if each one of us will let Christ have the place He's supposed to have, then anything preached from His Word will be effectual in that life, because He's where He's supposed to be. Paul, I, what, let's ask this: in the life of the Apostle Paul, what part of Paul's life did his faith in Jesus Christ not touch? 
It determined whether or not he would be married. That determination about remaining single had to do with his fellowship with Jesus Christ and his service for him. It determined where he would live. Paul didn't stay in one place long because God's call on his life was to move him to different places. I believe that's part of the reason the Lord left him unmarried because it would be very difficult to take a wife and children all over the world, now wouldn't it? My point is this. What his relationship with Christ determined where he would live. It determined how he would travel. It determined what he would do for a living practically with his hands on the side and how much he would work. It determined his daily schedule. He said, laboring night and day, lest he would be chargeable to the church. I don't find any facet of the life of the Apostle Paul untouched by Jesus Christ. That's because Paul was focused on one thing. And when the one thing is there, it'll touch all things. And so then, let's look at three simple things concerning this statement Paul makes in verses 10 through 17. Verses 10 through 12, we're going to focus in on Paul's confession. He says, here's a confession of what his his heart's desire was. If you back up just a little bit, he said that he had counted all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He was like the man that went and sold everything he had and bought that pearl of great price. Saul, uh, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, sold his his uh, vocation as a uh, his education. He sold it out. He got rid of his his upbringing, his education. I don't know if his parents were living when he got saved. It was probably a great disappointment to them if they were. Paul had, as Saul of Tarsus, sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most renowned educators in his day, and gotten him what would be the equivalent, probably today, of a Harvard law degree, and he gave it up. Today, there's many a Christian that would say it's a waste to give up a secular education to go wholeheartedly serve Christ. William Borden, as you know very well, most of you the story of William Borden, he was one of the heirs to the Borden uh, dairy, and he gave up his inheritance. Literally, the family said, if you go as a missionary, you are forfeiting your inheritance. He gave that up to be a missionary, died before he reached the age of 30 on his way to the mission field. Right? And William Borden was thought a fool by his family for giving up so much earthly wealth and treasure and education. If you study the life of Adoniram Judson, Adoniram Judson, if he had stayed in the United States of America and his wife, his first wife, both were people who had the makings of of social movers and shakers. They had uh, families that had influence. They had wealth in their families. They had good education. Uh, Adoniram Judson was a brilliant man, an extremely intelligent man. And he gave up because of God's call on his life. He didn't pick and say, you know, I think I want to go to Burma. God put a burden on his heart and called him to Burma. Before he would marry his wife, he made it clear, if you marry me, we're going to Burma. And that had to be, that had to be understood at the onset. We're giving up perhaps our very lives, and she did, to serve the Lord. Now, how could, I'll tell you, Adoniram Judson, what part of his life did Jesus Christ not touch? His married life? His secular life? His, see, what happens is, if we're not careful, and I, I'll get to the message in a minute, if we're not careful, we will compartmentalize God into Sunday and midweek, and whatever days we do things that are attached to church activity, when in fact, Jesus Christ is to be the one thing about all of our lives. He is to determine everything. And that's what Paul's saying. He said, look, I've counted all loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. By the way, if we saw a person do that for any earthly endeavor, what we see people like that. We call them fanatics. 
People that, that, that earn their money and give up everything so they can go to NASCAR races. I met a young man recently. He said he, he snowboards three to four days a week. And when he's not doing that, he's attending races across the country. And I'll be honest with you. I say, yeah, he's in his 30s. thought, number one, you got to have a lot of money. <laughs> number two, what a waste to invest your life in that. I mean, you can tell. Pleasure and those kind of things, that's the one thing there. But for us, we'd say, why, why would Christ have such a place where you'd give up everything just to know him? Well, if you know him, you understand completely. No one else died for our sins. No one else left heaven and came for us. No one else raised from the dead. No one else has the power to redeem our soul and give us eternal life. No one else is preparing for us a mansion in heaven. No one else has done for us or will do for us or loves us like Christ does. Paul said, the love of Christ constraineth us. And that's what he's saying here. He said, I've counted all things but loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I, this verse 8, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. And do count them but dung. Meaning, I know I lost them, but it doesn't bother me that I lost them. They are worthless to me. Count them but dung that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. He said, when I put, came to Christ, I understood I was not offering God my righteousness. I was receiving his. But that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Here's his confession. Why? He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. He said, even as that conformity to his death, as he died uh, unto sin, and through our faith in Christ, we die to a life of sin, we die to a life of self, and self-pleasing, and self-preservation, that we may live unto God. That's Romans chapter 6. It's exactly what he's talking about. And he said, I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Uh, verse 11, if by any means I might attain under the resurrection of the dead. Now, those who would be of an Armenian persuasion would love this verse and say, see, Paul wasn't even sure if he's going to be raised from the dead. That's not what he's saying. Attaining under the resurrection of the dead means his sight was set on the day that he would be resurrected and stand before Christ. If you read anything from Paul, you understand that is what he was living his life toward. He was living toward the day when he would have a glorified body. He was living toward the day when he would meet Christ. He said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, he said in 2 Corinthians 5 that he labored, he and his fellow laborers labored that they may be accepted of him. You can read that in 2 Corinthians 5, that what drove him was the day that he would have the resurrection from the dead. And then the next verse, I think, helps explain it when he says, not as though I had already attained... Either already perfect. So when you look at verses 10 and verse 11, he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means, meaning whether it is by living a life that reckons myself dead unto sin, and, he's, and he'll explain it all in a minute, or by death itself, what I long for is that resurrected body. I long for what God saved me to. I, I'm longing for that day. The idea is, Paul says, I'm not longing for a better day here. I am longing for resurrection day. I am longing for the day when I meet the Savior, whether it be through being taken away or being losing my life. And so in Paul's confession, he's going to give us a couple of things. He gives forward his spiritual objective. He is, he is enamored with, if you might say it that way, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, here's what I want to do. He says, I'm willing to lose all things that I might know Him. I wonder, and by the way, he didn't say that I might know about him, but that I may know him. 
Paul wanted personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. Once the Lord had saved him and called him on the road to Damascus, his entire desire was, I want to know him. I want his resurrection power demonstrated through my life. And what I'm looking forward to is that resurrection someday when, when faith becomes sight in essence. And you can get in the context of the scripture that Paul's sights are set forward to the judgment seat of Christ, set forward to that day when he would be in, in, he would know as he had been known. So his spiritual objective is that Christ was worth everything and that knowing him was worth everything and that that is done through the fellowship of his sufferings and being made conformable unto his death. His spiritual objective is laid forward. Look in Philippians chapter 1. You see here's his spiritual objective here. The idea was he wanted to know Christ and he wanted Christ to be known. He wanted Christ magnified. And we've talked about this before. I used to read the idea of Christ being magnified. And magnification deals with one of two things. It is either making small things look bigger than they are. Well, that's not what he's talking about here. Or bringing things that are distant into focus as though they're near. So the sun is far away. The moon is huge. But if you can put a telescope on it, you can enjoy the beauty of the moon more because you can magnify it. And you know what Paul said? I live that Christ may be known. Known by me and known through me. Now let me ask you something. Is this, is this unreasonable that the person that's been saved should be so singularly focused that whether I'm eating or drinking, so if I'm just going through my daily routines of what everybody does. Do you realize God says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God? You realize every facet of our lives is to be lived with Jesus Christ in mind, with knowing Him and Him being known through us. Philippians 1.20, talking about Paul's spiritual objective. He says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always so now also... Christ shall be magnified by my body, whether it be by life or by death. I think that's exactly what he's referring to in Philippians 3 when he says, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of of the dead. I want to glorify the, the, the doctrine of the resurrection and the life of Jesus Christ, whether it is by my living or it is by my dying. It doesn't matter to me. I want the living Christ and his power to resurrect, that's eternal life, to be known through me. Uh, Christianity has, I say Christianity, what Christianity has become. Bible Christianity is always the same. But what is thought of as Christianity today has belittled itself to this, uh, making known a better life until we die. That is not Bible Christianity. Bible Christianity is eternal life, and this life is seen in perspective against eternal life. We are so certain that we have eternal life that we will live in the entirety of this life willing to forfeit the things we might have had here in preparation for eternity. We're not only sure we're going to spend eternity with God, we want to make sure that when we enter into eternity, that we've invested the short time we had here properly, so that for all eternity we'll be glad we did. And we need a revival in this church even, of a comprehension that eternal life is a reality. That heaven is a reality, hell is a reality. That's not eternal life, that ends in eternal death. But eternity is a reality. It is not to be a mere comfort to my head when I pillow it at night so I can sleep a little better. It is to be the driving factor of my life that when I step out of this existence, I will step into the presence of God. 
That's what Paul is saying. He said, hey, whether it's by life or by death, doesn't matter to me. My objective is this, that Christ be magnified in my body. So if I'm going to live, I want Christ to be brought more clearly into focus. And if I die, I want the way I die to bring Christ into focus. How many of you would say the man succeeded? You read about his life, and all you can see is Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And then you read about his death, and we hear about his death. You know what? He lived for Christ. He died for Christ. Now, we're not all called to be martyrs, but I believe we can have the same objective, that whether it be by life or by death, that Christ may be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or death, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What unregenerate person could say that dying is gain? The only way that an unsaved person says dying is gain is when they are in such misery in this life. They say, well, if that person died, they'd be better off anyway. And the only way you can believe that is to believe that they're going in the dirt instead of into the flames of hell. Right? Paul said, for me, to die is gain. I will then be in that res. I'll be maybe not in his resurrected body yet, but he'll be in the very presence of Christ. And so in Paul's confession, he gives his spiritual objective in Philippians 3, 10, and 11, and that is that he might attain unto the resurrection of dead. I believe, in essence, that Christ may be magnified in his body. He said, by whatever means, if by any means, life or death, I might attain unto that. Again, he's not trying to earn his salvation. The context of Scripture makes that clear, not only this Scripture, but all other Scripture. Then his spiritual outlook is in verses 11 and 12. He says, if by any means, I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. But verse 12 says, not as though I had already attained. He said, let me make this very clear. I look forward to the resurrection and the resurrection body and all of that. He said, but I don't believe I've already arrived there. Not as though I'd already attained. Either we're already perfect. He said, I don't view myself as being done. I don't view myself now. So, for instance, Paul did not believe you could reach sinless perfection in this life. He did not believe that you arrive at some spiritual nirvana in this life and say, hey, I'm it. Now, I'm going to ask you, if anybody in the New Testament could claim that, this man could. If anybody could say, I have attained and arrived at the mark where, where I have no more growth, no more love for Christ to give, no more that he is worthy of, I am the epitome of Christianity. There's, I can now settle into where I'm at and just stay right where I'm at spiritually. In my current spiritual state, you cannot be more spiritual than I am. That's all he said. He said, I've not attained that yet. I have not attained in this life what I will attain at the resurrection. He said, so, uh, not as I'd already attained, either we're already perfect, but I follow after, meaning I've got that in my sights. That's what I'm living toward. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. What does he mean? Um... When we, I'll try to use an example here. If I needed this water filled tonight, um, and I said, Dawson, my cup is empty, would you go fill it? I don't want you to. I've apprehended him. I'd say, hey, come here. And he would come. And I'd say, here, I want you to go fill this. <clears throat> I apprehended him for the purpose of filling the cup of water. If he took my cup and went outside and started throwing snowballs, I would say, that's not what I apprehended you for. <laughs> I apprehended you to fill a cup of water. And he says, well, I didn't really like your plan for me. I want to go throw snowballs. It'd be like a lot of Christians live their lives. Do you realize when God saved us, he apprehended us for a purpose? Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. 
realize God did not... He did save us because He loves us and He wanted to rescue us from an eternity in hell. There's no doubt He did. So we say, God didn't save you, just to keep you out of hell. That's not all He saved you for, but He did save you from hell because He loves you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. Meaning God sent His Son to save you from perishing. But is that all He, he sent His Son for? Or does He have a purpose and a, and a desire to spend our lives... A certain way. God has a purpose. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. The beginning of God's purpose in your life was when you were born again. But that was the beginning. He wants you to grow up into maturity in Christ so that you can serve Him until He brings you home. Paul understood that. He referred to it as his race, his course, his uh, uh, his match of fighting, whatever it may be. He saw his time between salvation and resurrection or between salvation and death. He saw that as his God-ordained course of service. And he said, my goal then, he said, is to obtain or to, to apprehend, I want to get a hold of that which he apprehended me for. I am focused on fulfilling the very purpose of God for my life. One of the things that the Lord leads me to pray for my children, I don't. I know it's God's will they get saved. It's God's will that every person gets saved. Those who don't get saved have to be rebels. They're fighting against God's will. God is not willing that they should perish, but they should come repentance. So if they won't repent, they're in rebellion against God's will, and they'll perish for that. So I know God wants my children to be saved. I know He wants your children saved. I know He wants the unsaved people we're dealing with. I can pray, Lord, please continue to work to save that person. And know I'm praying in line with His will. Now they'll have to cooperate to get saved. But once someone's saved, we know the general will of God. God wants us sanctified. He wants to purify our lives and make us a testimony of His saving grace. I know that and I pray for the sanctification of my children and of your lives as well. So I pray for us to be a church, those of us who are here tonight, to be holy in our living, to be pure and godly. Because I know that's God's will. What I don't know yet is God's spiritual gifting in every life. I don't know how God best wants to spend your life. So there's areas where I pray, Lord, I'm asking for your purpose for that life to be fulfilled. But you understand something with Paul. What Paul is saying, there's a twofold. God has a purpose for your life, but you will not fulfill it without wanting to. Paul said, here's what I'm desirous of. He said, here's my, here is my, uh, my objective and my outlook. He said, that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. He said, what I am chasing and what I'm pursuing and what I'm setting out to accomplish is that which Jesus saved me and called me to accomplish. Paul had a clear understanding of what he was called to do. He's called to be an apostle and especially to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He said he was called to preach. It was very clear what Christ had apprehended him to do. You know what? You ought to say tonight, Lord, you saved me out of Satan's grasp. What is it that you apprehended me for? What did you apprehend me for? If that is not a, 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 a driving force in our hearts and in our minds, it should be. We ought to desire to apprehend that for which I was apprehended. This is his, all his spiritual outlook. Verse 12, not as though I had already attained. He said, I've not arrived at spiritual perfection in the sense of being lacking no part. There's still things unfinished in my life. But I follow after. I don't, believe, I don't believe, by the way, he is confessing some known sin. That's not what he's saying. He was, God was not done with building his godly character. He said, I'm, not, I'm still not lacking. I can't say I lack nothing. 
So, but I follow after that I may apprehend that for which also I'm apprehended of Christ Jesus. Let's visit one of the verse very quickly on the subject of God's will for your life and service. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, talking to people who knew the salvation of, of, Christ, of Christ in their life, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Oh, how, how humanistic we often can get in our thinking uh, to think, well, what do you want to do with your life? I don't think Paul cared what he wanted to do with his life. What he wanted to do with his life no longer crossed his mind. He didn't believe his life was his own. He said, I was bought with a price. All I care about is what does he want to do with my life? I don't care what I want to do with my life. I gave that up when I got saved. It is what does he want to do with my life? You know what Paul said on the road to Damascus? What wouldst thou have me to do? You know what he's saying? Why did you apprehend me? You just, you cut me off in the middle of my, my zeal to persecute your church. You broke me down. You brought me to a place of repentance. And Lord, you are Lord. Now, what do you want me to do? And he lived the rest of his days, not what do I want to do? What wouldst thou have me to do? May I say this tonight? If that's not my heart, I'm not right with God. Between me and God, you've got to make that choice. But you cannot be pursuing what you want with your life and be a genuine Christian. You may be saved, but the Christian does not say, what would I do? What do I want to do? And here's what we're prone to do that's so dangerous. We, we are so familiar with the things of God by this point in history and this place in the United States of America that we find what we want to do and see if we just can't get God's blessing on what we want to do. Lord, if I can't get you to get on my side so that I can apprehend the things that I want to apprehend. <laughs> we touched on this this morning. And, but not Paul. But Paul says, no, my confession is this. My objective is that I may know him. I just need to know him. I need to know his mind, his heart, uh, that I may uh, magnify him in my body, I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as I'd already attained. I'm obviously not. I've not arrived. I'm not done yet. I'm not sinless. I'm not, uh, I'm not finished. He said, but I do follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I'm apprehended of Christ Jesus. Verse 13, we come into our next point. We see Paul's confession, verses 10 and 12, verses 13 and 14, Paul's course. He says, brethren, he's going to remind them of the same thing again. I count not myself to have apprehended. He said, I'm not done. I'm not through. I have not yet fully apprehended. I am not in that sinless body. Paul never wanted man worship in his life. He never wanted to say, look, if you want to see the, you want to see the Christian that has it all together and that has nothing yet to be dealt with or worked on or changed, that would be me. Then you can get to a point where you're a mature Christian. A mature Christian. How many would say when you reach adulthood, you're, you're physically matured? You're mentally matured. And so once you reach adulthood, meaning your limbs aren't going to grow any longer or taller. Um, some of us still grow, but in ways we would not if we had our choice. right? Uh, uh, the point would be this. Um, reaching physical maturity doesn't mean you don't still have to tend to your body. Does it? You probably need to more, actually. What happens is when you reach maturity, you don't think, I've reached the point 
where I can settle in and relax and not worry or concern or I'm going to use the word worry, but not apply myself to my responsibilities. Actually, spiritual maturity is just the opposite or even uh, physical and mental maturity. You don't reach a point where you can say, hey, I've arrived. You say, well, I know I've not, so I've got to set some things in my life to make sure I do what I'm supposed to do. And Paul says, I've not apprehended. Let me remind you that again, brethren. I count not myself to have apprehended. I'm not pointing you to me to say you'll find nothing lacking, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You know what he's saying? I am applying myself to what I know God's will is for my life. He says, here's the deal. My, I, he said, while I am not the, I am not in the likeness of Christ yet. For instance, John talks about this. He said, uh, we, we don't know yet what, what we'll be like, but when he appears, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. Paul says, I'm not in that glorified state. I'm not there. I'm still in a body of flesh. Nevertheless, I do have a course that's been given to me. And I've run part of that course. Paul had run a great deal of his course by the time Philippians 3 was run. But he says, I'm not thinking about what I've done in the past. He said, forgetting those things which are behind. You know what he's saying? You know when the present is? It's between past and future. Well, that's profound, isn't it? But it's the truth. Paul said, I am not living looking over my shoulder into my past. Now, he could. And by the way, there's danger in this. There's danger in looking back in the past. And you've heard it preached before. He said, forgetting those things which are behind. Can you think of anything that Paul might have needed to forget? That doesn't mean he didn't know what they were and he had actually lost his memory. Forgetting there is like God forgets. He willingly put it out of his mind. This is called focus. When I put things out of my mind that might distract me and hinder me from being what I'm supposed to be today and doing what I'm supposed to do right now, what that's called is focus. And I find here that Paul, he's faithful, number one, to remind them of the truth. I'm not pointing you to me. I'm pointing you to Christ. I've not yet apprehended. Number two, he is, he is focused. He said, forgetting those things which are behind. Uh, had, he, had he persecuted the church? Now, he didn't forget that's what he was, but he put it out of his mind. Can you imagine how that might cause you guilt as you're going and preaching the gospel you at one time persecuted? Would you think there could rise the question, are you really sincere or are you just trying to prove that you're a nice guy? Your past can eat you up. But his past sins were under the blood. And if God can forget him, so can we. Some people say, well, I just can't forgive myself. You're right, you can't. You have no power or authority to forgive yourself. When you sin, you didn't sin against your own laws. You sinned against God. So only God can forgive you. But what we can do is take his word that he's washed us clean and forget it and put it behind us. There's not a person in this room that don't have some things already, even you children, in your past that need to be taken under the blood. You need to be repentant of them, turn your back on them so they are things that are behind you. You know what? There are seasons of my life that I praise God are behind me. But you know what? They are. They're behind me. So I can't be constantly looking back saying, oh, I wish I'd done this. You, you need to forget your regrets. Regrets are what they are. But if you have repented toward God and God is, then he's promised to forgive you, then that's behind you. We can be constantly saying, well, could I, what if I, because we worry. I don't want to do the same thing again. I would sure hate to fall in the same thing and we dwell on our past. No, no, Paul said, forget those things which are behind. How about past successes? Had Paul not had some past successes? Had he not taken some stands? 
What he could do is say, well, I'm confident I'll stand. I mean, think about how I stood back there in Ephesus and think about how I stood back there and think about the persecution I went through there. I think I've proven I'm a pretty worthy saint. I don't worry. When pressure comes today, I'm sure I'll stand again. Look at my track record. Well, pride goes before destruction and in haughty spirit before a fall. I had the very thought the other day, past battles won are not victory today. Past battles are past battles. Praise God for them. Let them encourage you in fighting your battles today. But a previous victory is not a present victory. So we need to forget both past successes and past failures. Forgetting those things which are behind. And he said, and reaching forth unto those things which are before. He said, I've got the past behind me and I'm not going to live in the past. I've got the future, which is a resurrection body in front of me. And that's what I'm shooting for. What he's talking about is he's running a course and there's a finish line. Finish line is death or departure by the rapture, one or the other. When life on earth is done, that's the mark. That's it. And he said, I am pressing toward that. I am pressing toward finishing my course correctly. I am pressing toward accomplishing what God saved me to accomplish before I reach the end. That ought to be our perspective. He says, I am focused today on running the course that God's given me to run. He said, I am focused today on fulfilling His design for my life, which is obviously communicated through His Word. You can't do that if you don't know Him. But if you know Him, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, then what happens is, you know what? You don't live in the past. You know what's coming in the future, and you live today based on that future promise that you're going to stand before the judgment seat, that there are rewards for the faithful, Paul knew there were rewards for being faithful, and he had set his heart on, I want the rewards for finishing faithfully. May I say this? You can be saved, but that doesn't mean you'll run your course and finish it. You can quit mid-course. Let me ask you a question. Why would the Lord warn us about not fainting if we couldn't faint? He told us in Hebrews chapter 12, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. And the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the Lord Jesus knew what was before him. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. For consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Why would he warn us of getting weary and fainting if it weren't possible And he said, if you wear yourself down with weights, I believe those are distractions. Things that we're bearing that God didn't give us to bear. He said, you've got to lay those aside. And the sin, so there are weights, the sinless things, but they hinder us in our obedience. May I say this? If there is something that seems harmless, but it it is hindering you from doing what you know Christ would have you do, lay it aside. Why? So we can be focused on one thing. He said, Paul said this, this one thing I do. What was the one thing? It sounds like a lot of things. What he's doing is this one thing is I press toward the mark. How so? By forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forth in the things which are before. He said, I've got a past, I've got a past history. I've been running my race, but it's not done. So I've got to forget that. I'm running today. I've got rewards set out in front of me at the judgment seat, and I'm running toward those. And then the word here is I press. That brings us to thirdly, not only Paul's faithfulness in his course, his focus on his course, but his fervency in his course. I press toward the mark. That press is to move forward with vigor and with purpose. You know what? We are to press 
toward the finish line. We are to keep our eyes set on the day when the Lord says, you're done, and press toward the mark of obedience and finishing our course, as Paul said, with joy. That's what he said in Acts chapter 20, that may finish my course with joy. And the idea is you do not run the race of God's will on accident. That's what I want to press upon you tonight. You have to purpose. I am going to apprehend that which for which I was apprehended. And while I'm on the course, I'm going to focus on staying on that course until I'm done with my life. It's what David said and what we preached this morning, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. We need more people in God's house who say, I'm all in forever. We have such a non-committal ideology. Well, I'll try this if it works because we're pragmatists. May I say this? If we were persuaded, we'd say, I know it'll work. I'm all in. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called and born again to His purpose, then love God and let His purpose be your call. Forget what you want to do. Put it on the altar. Forget the career you want. Put it on the altar. If that's the career God wants, fine. But if it's not, burn it. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Do you realize when God called you to salvation, you received a high calling? I've heard men say this, and I believe it with all my heart. Men who pastor and preach, I would not dare step down from being a preacher to be a president. That's not rhetoric. This is, and it's not just preaching that's a high calling. If you are called to be a Christian, you have a high calling. God, that look, the God of heaven, you might work for the White House and that's fine, but working on earth for the God of heaven is higher. It is a high calling to serve Christ. I hope I, I, I cannot overemphasize the honor and the privilege it is to know that you have God's call on your life to serve Him in some facet. It may be served faithfully in a local church. All the days of your life you may not teach, you may not preach, you may labor with your hands and give and give of your time and your sweat and your treasure so that the work of God can go forward. Or you may preach or you may teach. All of that is a high calling. We are all called to be sanctified and we are all called to serve. And Paul said, I've been called and it's a high calling and I press toward that mark. Not the mark of man's approval, not the mark of my own pleasure, but the mark of the fulfilling of his will. There will be one thing, one thing driving every person in this room every day. Am I doing the will of my Savior? Why? So we can be saved? No, because we're saved. Because we have his righteousness. You know what? One of the reasons, one of the reasons there's schism among God's people is you have some who are all in. Some who say, I am just living, I just want to live my life out in a way that pleases Him. That's all that matters. So, in my companionships, in my, uh, in my music, in my dress, in my living circumstance, in my schedule, in my thought life, in my attitude, in my disposition. I really just want to know that, and not out of fear, but out of love, I want to be sure I'm pleasing Him. I'm living out my life for His approval. Because that's what our course is, right? And what happens is there are others who want Him to be pleased with us but don't live to please. Don't miss what I just said. I've mentioned this more than once. My wife and I were talking. I heard a man say one time, he was a parenting coach, if you would. He said, I find that children, want, they want to please their parents. 
I told my wife, I said, mm-mm. Children want their parents to be pleased with them. There's a difference. I think we all want God to be pleased with us. Lost men want God to be pleased with them. That's why they try to keep the Ten Commandments. Well, maybe if I do that, he'll be happy with me. No, he'll be happy with you and you acknowledge you have no righteousness to offer him and you accept the righteousness he offers you in Jesus Christ. But once he's done that, we ought to aim to please and only aim to please one. I believe this. I believe this church, the soul of this church, is in current, in a struggle over what the Bible talks about as called separation. Are we going to live our lives exclusively to please the one who saved us? Or are we going to be duplicitous and try to create a Christian life that is acceptable to them and him? I've watched our church come through various phases, and I'm just being frank about where I believe we are. The young people in this church are at a junction in life where they've got to decide not are they going to let the Lord save them. I believe these young people have a testimony of having made that decision of faith. But are they going to live for the one who saved them or for something else? The adults should be an example of living for one thing. Amen? And separation is this. We hear separation. People say, well, it's a bunch of rules that some leader slaps on your life to make you look weird in the sight of the world. That's the carnal idea about separation. Biblical separation is this. I will live my life exclusively to please him so that he can use me how he wants to in this life. And that will result in me looking and acting and behaving very differently than everybody else does because that's not the way the world's living. It is a willingness to be distinct and different from the world in areas of holiness and purity and godliness for this purpose, not do we separate for the purpose of being separate or do we separate for the purpose of pleasing him? It is different from them to be pleasing to him. And so then that's where Paul's at. I know he's not dealing with all the outward evidences of separation, but he's saying, look, I am living for one thing. I am living to hear well done. I am living toward the day when I stand before him. I press toward the mark for the what? The prize. He said, I've got a high calling on my life. And he promised me that if I'm faithful, I get a crown. I mean, you know, and I'm God willing, sometime in the future, I want to teach on the crowns that are mentioned in the Bible and the rewards that are, that are given. Uh, Jesus in Revelation said, if you endure persecution and death, there's a crown for you. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive a crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Shouldn't we want that crown? Shouldn't we want to endure temptation because we love God, not yield to what we know displeases Him because we love Him and we want Him to say, well done, when Satan came by and tried to get you to be disloyal to me and disobey me, you said no for my sake. Here's a crown. You know what? The Lord Jesus does not judge the way this wretched old world does. He's not saying, you know, participant's crown, participant's crown. You were a Christian and you were tempted and yes, you yielded, but you get a crown for not yielding anyway. It's not an unjust judge. If you yield to temptation, you do not get the crown for overcoming. You may be in heaven, but the crown will burn or be given to somebody else. Yes? That's 1 Corinthians 3. There is a crown for faithful service. Paul said, uh, he said, the time of my, I'm ready to be, I'm ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. And he said, I'm ready. I have fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith henceforth because I have finished the will of God for my life on this earth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. But Paul was saying, there are conditions on crowns, and I am running that I may obtain the crowns. May I say this? If you are told, hey, you know what? You're going to run, uh, you're going to run a race. And if you can finish this race in less than 25 minutes, you get a $500 price. Would you not practice and train so that you could win the 500 bucks? I would. I want the crown. You know what Paul's saying? I press toward the mark for the prize. I want a spiritual reward. We don't hear much on that these days, do we? Because we don't think that a, that a loving God would put any kind of conditions on you for rewards. Eternal life is not our reward. That's Christ's reward. But crowns are a reward for faithfulness. There's a number of crowns. And Paul said, I want, I want the prize. He says, I'm focused. First Corinthians 9.24, he says to the Corinthian church, that carnal church, know you not that they which run in a race run all, but one received the prize. <laughs> not everybody's going to win a prize. But one received the prize. He says, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run. Not as uncertainly. He said, I'm not, I'm not confused about why I'm running. Uh, not as uncertainly. No, there's one that beateth the air. He said, I'm not shadow boxing. He said, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means uh, I myself should be a castaway when I have preached to others. The idea was this, not a castaway of salvation, but a castaway when it comes to the race and the crowns. He said, I don't want God to say you're unfit to run. He said, so I keep under my body. Let me tell you something today. If Christ has your heart, it will determine how you use your body. Know you not that uh, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit your God's. If you are using your body to sin, if you are using your body to pursue sensual lust, if you are using your body to pursue uh, through covetousness the wealth of this world, if you are misusing and I you misuse my body, there is no prize. Paul said, I am running on purpose that I might win a prize. He's not talking about winning salvation. He's talking about being faithful as a Christian. Oh, I tell you, I tell you, we, they're so, when I listen to broader supposed Christianity, I don't hear this. I don't hear this. What I hear is, and it's, many things they're saying are true, but there's a, a de-emphasis on faithfulness. And Paul says, I press, I am forward going, I am focused on God's will for my life, I am focused on the prize at the end, and I am with fervency running toward that. Letting nothing turn me aside. Finally, Paul's command, verses 15 through 17. What we might do is say, well, that's Paul. Good for him. That was the mighty missionary Paul. Hmm? He says this. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect. Now, he's not contradicting himself. Perfect here is used in a different context. Perfect back there means I have nothing to add. I am like God. I, I am as I will be in my glorified body. So, no, I'm not attaining that. But as many as be perfect, meaning those that are mature those that are of spiritual age, I believe uh, John would call them, I write unto you fathers, those of you who have grown up spiritually. He said, so let us, there, us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. He said, this is my outlook. This is my mindset. I am, I'm focused on one thing, my master. I am focused on fulfilling his will for my life, nothing else. I'm not trying to keep my family happy. I'm not trying to keep the world happy. I'm not trying to keep my flesh happy. I'm living to please my Savior. He said one thing. He said, now as many as be perfect, meaning if you're spiritually mature, you should be thinking the same way. 
let as many as be perfect be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall be leaving this unto you. Meaning, if you don't think like this, you need more light. God will show you this is the way you're supposed to think. The immature Christian is still very distracted by his own wants, wishes. The baby Christian has to learn how to be focused on God's will. But perfect Christians, they know this is the way to live the Christian life. One thing. Mature Christians, he said, if as many as be perfect, as many as be matured and grown up in Christ, be thus minded. Meaning, I've put my mindset in front of you to say this is the standard. This is the standard mindset for the Christian. How many of us know that what I often say, I believe it's, I don't believe it's just conjecture, I think it's a fact, that there is crept into the mentality of God's people that there are super saints and there are lesser saints. I mean, there are, and look, I understand there are saints that have more gifting. I get that. I think Paul was one of those. But we'll, we'll address the same thing John the Apostle did. That extra gifting or further experience was just about helping others to come along and fulfill the will of God. It wasn't about being superior. It was about serving. And may I say this? There are not super saints. There are people with different responsibilities in God's house and God's family. But there are no super saints. We all the missionaries. You know, every Christian ought to think like Adoniram Judson. Every. He wasn't supposed to be some anomaly. And the only thing that makes him that is the abundance of carnality. The only thing that makes faithful Christians seem like an anomaly is how many unfaithful there are. I believe that. I believe Paul wrote to the Corinthians the way he did because most of them were carnal and cared more about earthly things than they did eternal. And so he had to write to them and rebuke them and say, hey, you think like men. What he meant by that is, well, we're supposed to think like men? No, we're supposed to think like God. We're supposed to value eternal things. So the point would be this. Paul said, let as many as be perfect be thus minded. If you are spiritually mature, you, this is the way you got to think. And if there be thus minded, if anything, if in anything you be otherwise minded, I mean, if there's any among you or uh, among your mentality that would think, I don't think that's right, he said, God will reveal even this unto you. Meaning, you know what he's saying? What I'm telling you is from God. <laughs> he said, uh, God shall reveal even this unto you. Verse 16, nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. So much as you have attained uh, what I'm talking about, so much as you have attained the will of God, don't go backwards in it. So much as God has revealed to you his mind, don't reject it. Don't turn backwards on what God has wrought in your life and the will of God that is in place in your life. Don't reverse you. How many people I have seen in the past 15 years who at one time believed Bible truth and now reinterpret it and have started changing the way they're living to be more like the way the world lives and say, well, God has shown me things from the Bible I never saw when I was under oppression in Bible-preaching churches. Well, they'll say under fundamentalism, whatever they want to see. And all of a sudden what happens is they start reversing decisions they made for the Lord. I had a loved one at one point in time. He had a heart for winning souls. He'd give out tracts. He would go and visit people. He would talk to people about the Lord. But he got light and revelation to understand that that was all unnecessary. It was a taxation on his life. And if God wanted them saved, he would direct him to them at some point in time. He came under some Calvinistic type teaching. And today, he almost lives in mockery of any concerted effort to get the gospel to people and see them saved. And he gave it up in his life. He'll spend his Saturdays on a boat or uh, on some hobby or making some money, but he did it with a spiritual outlook. Paul said, don't do that. 
So much as you've already attained what God apprehended you for, walk by the same rule. Don't change the rules that God has already implemented in your life out of love for him and obedience to him. And then he says uh, in verse um, 17, Brethren, be followers together of me, meaning each of you individually and then corporately follow the pattern I just put in front of you. May I ask this? Would it be too high of an expectation for the pastor, this pastor of this church, to expect every member to live their lives according to Philippians 3, 10 through 14? One thing. That each and every member should live exclusively to apprehend that for which they were apprehended of Christ and to press toward the mark for the prize. You know, Paul says, I want... All of you together, brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as you have us for an ensample. He said, we've set a pattern for you of how you're to live out your Christian life, pressing toward the mark for the prize. You need to understand what God says is necessary to win a prize and press toward it. Live your life toward that and that alone, not other things. Not things in, not, not notoriety, all those things. One thing. You know what Paul's saying? This is the standard for every Christian. Is this not what the Word of God say? It's the standard for every Christian. Oh, how many times uh, we've fallen prey for some idea that, you know what? If I don't live wholeheartedly for the Lord, there are some noble Christians who are super saints who are, the words we use, sold out or they're pressing toward the mark. They're driven every day, not driven, led every day by a, by a fervent persuasion that if they are faithful to God's call on their life, they will one day receive a prize from him for fulfilling his calling on their life. Number one, they're persuaded that God has a calling for them. Number two, they're persuaded that it is their blessing and responsibility to serve him in such a way, and they want to finish their course doing one thing, just fulfilling the will of God for their life. Now I wonder tonight, am I pressing toward the mark or am I pursuing other things? Am I focused on the will of God for my life and the reward for faithfulness? Or am I looking back, man, I wish, why I regret, why did I do that? Some people look back and say, why did I start doing that? They start obeying God somewhere. Man, look at all I missed out. I'm going to go back and revisit that and take another path. Uh, forgetting the things that are behind reaching forth in the things which are before. We're to cooperate with God's purpose and cooperate with the instruction given, continue in the will of God and conform to the pattern that is set before. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. May I say it's still a good pattern today. You find people that are living their lives exclusively to please Jesus Christ and fulfill his calling and you follow their example. Amen? It's the kind of preachers we seek to bring in here. People who are honed in on fulfilling the will of God for their life. Mm-hmm.